Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Today we start on a new study, having finished 1 Timothy last week. I'm excited about this book. Uh, we, don't, we don't think of death a lot. At least I don't. We don't like to think of it necessarily. But have you, ever, have you ever thought about what you would say if given the opportunity to utter your last words? You know you're going to die. And, and what would you want to pass on? What information would be so important that it would comprise your final words? Now, when we think of final words that have been said over history... Uh, some have been unfortunate. I think of General John Sedwick. He was a Union general during the Civil War and at the Battle of Spotsville Courthouse in Pennsylvania. His infantry was under attack, being shot at by a sniper. And he stood up and said to his men as they are ducking for cover, they couldn't hit an elephant at this range. And was promptly shot dead by the sniper. Now, some words have been touching. Think of perhaps the words by the philosopher, the Austrian philosopher Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein. He said, tell them I've lived a wonderful life. Said, oh, that's very touching. What would yours be? I mean, would you seek to pass on wisdom you've gained? Uh, perhaps give some final instructions to your family? The book that we are turning to now in our attention and spend the next few months in are the final words of the Apostle Paul. He knows that he is facing certain death. He understands that his time on earth is short. So he writes to Timothy some final words as he seeks to pass on the mantle of his ministry to his protege, Timothy. Yet, these final words are fascinating. As we work through this book, we'll discover that the topic of the final message he sent to Timothy was to endure suffering through faithfulness to the word of God. He sought once again in his last words to ground Timothy in the word of God. He reminded Timothy that the word is sufficient for everything that we face in life. And, and in each chapter, we find some combination of the idea that we must endure suffering through the word of truth. Endure suffering through faithfulness to the word of God. So as we begin this study, we're going to do so by looking at the first two verses. And, and these will serve for us as an introduction to this book. And as always is the case when we begin a new book study, uh, the first message is kind of a foundational surface, uh, uh, message to set the table, uh, setting to provide the background and the theme of the book so that we can rightly understand it and handle it properly. As we always say, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the original audience and the original author. And while the applications can change over time, the meaning does not change. And so, in order to understand the proper meaning intended by God, we need to understand the background and the purpose of this letter. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today. We're going to do so by means of the first two verses. Let's read them together. 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As we attempt to understand the background and theme of the letter that uh, we're going to look at, we'll do so by examining the author and the recipient of the letter that we find here in the first two verses. First is the author. Verse 1 tells us the author is Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So we see his status. As we know, Paul's position was one of a, as an apostle of Christ. An apostle was someone who had seen the risen Lord and had been appointed by him to a special service to the gospel in the founding of the church. Now, it's important to know that definition because as no one today has seen the risen Lord, and the church has been founded, they are not, have not been commissioned by him, there are no apostles today. They don't exist. And Paul informed us that his apostleship is the result of a direct command from God. Paul occupies the position he does in the church because of divine selection, not because he made the decision one day, that'd be really cool to be an apostle. It's not what happened. God determined it. It says it's by the will, the wish, the desire of God. And for Paul, the position of apostleship summarized his ministry. It was everything that he was. We think about his calling to be an apostle on the road to Damascus when he encountered the risen, risen Lord and was called into his service. And Paul informs us throughout his letters that he had received this special calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles with this apostleship. And this statement by Paul regarding his apostleship is also an appeal to authority. He's reminding Timothy that these final words that he's giving are not just some uh, sentimental thing, but rather these serve as a command from God. These words are not mere sentimentality of a dying man, but rather the commission of a sovereign God. And Paul also informs us and reminds us of the reward of all believers. He says he's an apostle according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Word according to, it means it's the standard by which God chose him, but also the object and intention of why God chose him. God chose him for the promise of life, to proclaim the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. God called the Apostle Paul to declare the promise of life found in Christ. That guarantee, that assurance of life. And that word life there is used in the New Testament of the supernatural life belonging to God and Christ. That the believer will receive in the future, but that we enjoy here and now. In other words, we live now. We will die one day unless Christ returns, but we don't die to die. We die to live. We will have eternal life. We see this in Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's why Christ said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, life is found through Christ. 
John 3.16, we're reminded, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have currently eternal life. John 10.10, Christ said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and might have it abundantly. You know, it's fitting, one man says, that Paul, the prisoner who faces death, should rivet the attention on the promise of indestructible life. This indeed is the life which is or centers in Christ Jesus. For apart from his atonement and intercession, no one would ever be in possession of that life, that salvation. So Paul's status is an apostle of life, an apostle to declare the gospel. But what's his situation? Well, as we work through the book, we'll discover that he was in prison. Verse 8 of chapter 1 tells us, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. In verse 16, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But unlike the other prison epistles, in this one, Paul does not expect to be released from this imprisonment. Rather, Paul expects to die. We see this in chapter 4, verses 6 or 8 says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought a good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his, his heavenly kingdom. You see, Paul expected to die. Now, as we finished First Timothy last week, well, Paul had been released from prison and was traveling around to the churches on a fourth missionary journey. And as you may recall, First Timothy was written to Timothy and to the Ephesian church from Macedonia. History and some examination of Paul's plans given to us in First Timothy and Titus help us kind of fill in the blanks between First Timothy and Second Timothy. In Macedonia, Paul addressed that letter to Timothy in Ephesus and his letter to Titus there in Crete. He told Titus of his intention to spend the winter in Nicopolis, and that's in Titus 3.12, a town in Epirus on the west or the Adriatic coast of Greece. We know from Paul's epistle to the Romans that he desired to evangelize Spain, Romans 15. If he did that, it had to have been following that following spring that he began the journey. And, and Clement of Rome, one of the church fathers, in his famous letter to the Corinthians, said that Paul had come to the extreme limit of the West. Now, that may have been only referring to Italy, but the Roman Empire referred to the extreme limits as Gaul or Spain, and maybe even as far as Britain, some suggest. It's safe to assume that he made it as far as Spain. And it's safe to assume that he later kept his promise to revisit Timothy there in Ephesus. He made that promise in 1 Timothy 3. From there, his itinerary 
seems to have taken him to the nearby port of Miletus, where he had to leave Trophimus behind ill. We find that in 2 Timothy 4. He traveled to Troas, the port from which he set sail for Europe, where he stayed with Carpus and apparently left behind a coat and some books, 2 Timothy 4.13. To Corinth, he left Erast, where Erastus left the party, and then he went from there on to Rome. And somewhere on that journey, he was rearrested somewhere in the year A.D. 66. Now, in order to understand why he was rearrested, we need to examine what was happening in the Roman Empire at the time. Now, the Roman Empire was led by an emperor, you know well, by the name of Nero. Now, he's known best for being absolutely crazy. He was psychologically insane. However, he's also known in history for being an amazing architect and a builder. And over the years, a massive section in Rome had been built up by Nero. But there was another section, a massive section in the valley between the seven hills that Rome was built on that had been built up as the slums of Rome. It was a very poor area. And with no building codes, the apartment buildings were just slapped together and built up with whatever was available. They were quite rickety and poorly built. In fact, they were so poorly built that historians tell us the apartment buildings actually were held up by leaning against each other. Some roads you would walk through between the buildings and it was like walking through a cave because all the buildings were just leaning on one another, holding each other up. So these, these buildings were in rough shape. And, and Nero was offended by this blight on the crown jewel of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, his city. And further, believing that he was God, Nero believed he was a god himself, he intended to build himself a palace fit for a god. And on this palatial estate, he intended to create a massive lake. And to do that, he needed that valley. He was going to build a dam and reservoir it up and turn it into a lake. But he had a problem. This massive slum with hundreds of thousands of residents was residing where he wanted this massive estate to be. So, in July of AD 64, he ordered the torching of the slums of his own city. But... Because of the poor buildings and the lack of building codes, the fire soon raged out of control. In fact, it burned for six days and nights. And not only the poor, rickety wooden shacks of the poor, but also stone mansions of the rich and the massive public buildings and the magnificent pagan temples and shrines were gutted by this fire. Well, the, the Roman citizens knew of Nero's grand building designs. They also knew of his hatred for the slums. And they could quickly put two and two together. And they traced the fire back to the commands of Nero. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, But all human efforts 
All the lavish gifts of the emperor and propitiation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration, the fire, was the result of an order by Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most tortures on a class hated for the abominations called Christians by the populace. You see, in need of someone to shift the blame to for the fire, Nero blamed the Christians. They were already hated because they did not participate in the pagan festivals of Rome, which their entire society was built on. They were seen as enemies of the state, as traitors to the empire. And the result was a vicious persecution of the Christians. Christians were being killed by being forced into the arena to fight against lions and against gladiators. They were thrown off cliffs. They were stoned and some were even sewn into wet animal skins and then put out in the sun. And as the skins dried, they would shrink, crushing those men and women and children. Some were dipped in pitch and lit on fire. And as the persecution intensified, they began to seek out the leaders of this group, the leaders of the church. So both Paul and Peter were arrested and sentenced to death. Here in Second Timothy, Paul describes himself as our Lord's prisoner in prison on behalf of the gospel. He was incarcerated in some dismal underground dungeon with a hole in the ceiling for light and air. And as he writes Second Timothy, His preliminary hearing has already taken place. We see that in chapter 4. And now he was awaiting the full trial, but was not expecting to be released. Death appeared inevitable to him. And so, he takes up this pen to write a final word to his son in the faith, Timothy. Historians inform us that Paul was condemned to death and then beheaded as a Roman citizen would have been on the Ostian Way about three miles outside the city of Rome. And Eusebius, quoting Dionysus of Corinth, says that Paul and Peter were both martyred on the same occasion. Though he adds that Paul's execution was by beheading and Peter's at his own request by crucifixion, head downwards. So this letter serves as Paul's final words. His incredible ministry is at an end and he's about to head to heaven. One can hear in their mind's eye as he is scratching on the paper the steps of the executioner coming ever closer down the corridor. Paul is penning the things he wants Timothy and the church to remember the most. Who did he write it to? Well, he wrote it to Timothy. Verse 2, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, let's look at Timothy's status. Timothy is called the beloved child. As we will see next week, Timothy was mentored, if not led to the faith, by Paul. He traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. He'd been sent by Paul to churches to help them. And and for several years now, Timothy had served as the pastor in Ephesus, seeking to help that church heal. But above all, Timothy was Paul's beloved friend. The word beloved is an interesting word. 
It's a form of the word agape, referring to the sacrificial godlike love. They loved each other with God's love. This word child is a term of endearment. It also indicates that Paul pictured Timothy as taking up his mantle. He's going to be the one serving these churches and seeking to help the pastors shepherd them towards godliness. He was going to have to attempt to fill Paul's shoes. So as he did so, these serve as Paul's instructions in how to do this. His situation indicates the probability that Timothy was still serving as the pastor in Ephesus. We mentioned in verse 16 that Onesiphorus was mentioned. Well, he was associated with Ephesus. We also see that greetings are conveyed to his household in verse 19. We also see in chapter 4 that Tychicus is being sent to Ephesus and is most likely the bearer of the letter, perhaps as a replacement for Timothy there. Alexander the coppersmith is mentioned in chapter 4. We saw him in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 20. So he is serving right now as the pastor in Ephesus, but he's being beckoned to Rome to minister to Paul in his final days. So Paul gives him a greeting. Now, we would not do justice or understand this book if we did not take a few moments to examine this greeting that Paul gives to Timothy. And it's true that social expectations demanded that Paul include a, a formula greeting at the beginning of his letter. Paul always did so, though, with a purpose. He didn't just do so out of ritual. And the subject of this greeting serves as the power and motivation with which Timothy will need to endure the suffering through fidelity to the word of God. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word grace, it's the idea of graciousness or favor. And Paul begins by wishing grace towards Timothy and us. It's a one-word summary of God's saving acts in Christ, stressing that salvation comes as a free gift to undeserving sinners. But the grace for which he prays is not just the grace that originally saves, because Timothy is addressed as his beloved child, a true child of God, but it's also sanctification. Often we think of salvation only in terms of justification, freedom from the penalty of sin, that one-time act, but it is also including sanctification, that process, that progressive process by which we're conformed to the likeness and image of Christ in our actions and character. And it includes glorification, the day when we'll receive our new bodies unstained by sin and forever freed from the power and presence of sin. So, so this grace that Paul prays for is grace in its wider aspect, divine favor in its fullest form, including sanctification. And even in this simple word, Paul is reminding us that the Christian needs grace from God to sustain him constantly. We've not yet arrived. We still need grace. And further, acceptance by God is not accomplished through the law. We don't accomplish pleasing God through checking off spe specific religious actions, but rather through grace. Second, Paul prays for mercy. In one important respect, this salutation differs from the others. In all the rest of the epistles, except First and Second Timothy, mercy is not found. This is different. 
This word mercy means compassion or pity. It describes help that's appropriate. The usual way of distinguishing between grace and mercy is to say that grace pardons while mercy commiserates. Grace is God's love toward the guilty and mercy is his love toward the wretched or the pity. Grace concerns their state. Mercy concerns their condition. Mercy in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is frequently, translation, is frequently used as the translation of the Hebrew word uh, hasid. This is a word which describes the loving kindness of God that undergirds his covenant with Israel. Because they are God's covenant people, God will always respond to them with pity and care. Forgiveness is always available to them. Help is always received when asked for. So Paul is reminding Timothy, and he's reminding all of us, that we daily need mercy when we're conscious of failure. We're God's covenant people, and so God will have mercy on us. Today we sang, He will hold us fast. Because he has mercy towards his people. Third, Paul prays for peace. Peace is that undisturbedness. The welfare of the individual. It's not describing an emotion or a feeling as much as it's describing a reality. The objective relationship between God and the believer gives us the reality of peace. It's a Greek expression identical with the Hebrew greeting shalom. It describes a state of salvation that results from grace and mercy of God. So it's, its meaning is not primarily personal and psychological in the sense of inner peace. Rather, it refers to a condition of life, a wholeness and harmony existing between God and man. It's the condition which provides a foundation for stability in all of life. You know, often believers look at our life in turmoil, our life in struggle. We say, I just don't have any peace. But the reality is that is not a reflection of your reality. That's just a reflection of your feelings. Because you are in a position of peace with God. You have a promise of a secure future. The trials and struggles of this world lead to anxiety, but seeing God for who he is, founding ourselves in his word, is what leads to true peace. That's why Paul wrote earlier in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the times when our feelings do not reflect the reality of peace, we're to run to God with our anxiety. We're to cast our care on God and through prayer and supplication, we're to bring our anxiety to the giver of peace. And we're to remind ourselves of our position. With thanksgiving, we're to recognize that we stand in a position of peace with God. And when we do this, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, which we cannot understand, envelops us. The word is that word that guards us. It uses that word guard. It's a military word, meaning soldiers on guard duty. God's peace, like a garrison of soldiers, 
will guard our thoughts and feelings so that they'll be as safe against the insults of worry and fear as any fortress. Because of the hope in Christ Jesus, because of the grace and mercy obtained through the death, burial, and resurrection, we can have peace. The real challenge of the Christian life is not to eliminate every unpleasant circumstance. It's to trust in the good purpose of our infinite, holy, sovereign, powerful God in every difficulty. Those who honor God by trusting Him will experience the blessings of His perfect peace. So, let joy take the place of your anxiety. Look away from yourself to the needs of your fellow believers. Be willing to yield your rights and your privileges for their sake. And as far as your needs are concerned, bring them all to God. Before Him in an attitude of thankfulness which He's already given you. And if you do this, you'll learn what true, unshakable contentment really is. Your, your feeling will align with reality. You'll find peace. This peace is from God. It's sourced in our Lord Jesus Christ. These items that Paul entreats God and Christ to grant to Timothy will prove to be vital to the ministry and responsibilities he's about to give to Timothy. As we work through this letter, we're going to discover that this letter is vital for the church today. It contains the message that Paul believed to be of utmost importance. The one thing he wanted us to walk away from his ministry with. And it's twofold. Persecution is expected for the Christian. We live in an unprecedented time of religious freedom. But this time is coming to a close. Secularism is encroaching on our doorstep. So that we can say that persecution is coming. If not for us, then certainly for our children and our grandchildren. But this persecution is not something to fear. At no point in this epistle does Paul regret his persecution. Rather, he rejoices that God counted him worthy to suffer. He welcomes the reality of standing in God's presence. So don't fear the coming persecution. Don't panic. They can't defeat the church. The worst they can do is leave us alive and it allows us to serve God. The best they can do is kill us and we get to stand with God forever. So don't fear, don't panic. Instead, find peace. Grace, mercy, and peace found in Christ. Second, the word is the foundation of all of life. This book, the Bible, must drive everything we are and do. It is the foundation of the church. It is why when we gather together, we read the word and we pray the word and we sing the word and we preach the word and we picture the word so that we can go out and share the word and live the word. Because it's all about the word. Over and over in this text as we walk through it, we will encounter the importance, the necessity of the word in our lives. My goal 
is that you will recognize it. That you will fall in love with the word. That you won't be a token Christian. But that we will truly be word people. I'm excited about 2 Timothy. I'm excited about the message that is here. It's the last words of Paul. The most important things he says. So you don't want to miss the next 300 messages through this book. It won't be that long, I promise. But we're not going to move too swiftly through it. There's so much here. So don't miss it. I know summer's coming. I know that that means in our congregation, in our state, that we go. But let me encourage you, if at all possible, be here. You don't want to miss it. Let me leave you with two so what's. The last two things we looked at. One, don't fear persecution. I hear it over and over as we look at the politics of our age, as we look at secularism encroaching, as we look at all the problems we fear. It's coming. Don't fear it. Don't fear it. We serve a big God. Second, found yourself in the word. Make it your foundation. Make it your comfort and your source. If you do it now, you'll survive then. Because it's all about the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Lord, we're excited to see what you have for us in this book. We pray that you will open it and make it alive in our hearts. That we might make it real. That we might live it out. That we might value your word above all things and be willing to suffer for you. Thank you for who you are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.